everyone, and welcome to Binance Podcast. My name is Helen Hai. I'm the head of Blockchain Charity Foundation. I'm your host today. I'm excited to introduce you Alex and Tom Tapscott, co-founders of Blockchain Research Institute and co-authors of the best-selling book, Blockchain Revolution. Alex Dong, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be here. Glad to be here. Recently, Binance and the Blockchain Research Institute have begun collaboration. And also, Dong, you've joined as the chairman of the Lingang Blockchain Academy. We also had the opportunity to join collaboration against the COVID-19. And I'd love to ask both of you some questions related to this. Let me start on how are innovators deploying blockchain to fight the pandemic? Well, I'll begin. Uh, this is Don. Uh, blockchain to us represents the second era of the internet. For decades, we've had an internet of information. Now we have an internet of value for or anything of value from money, securities, intellectual property, the data in our identities, uh, contracts, deeds, art, music can be managed, stored, transacted in a secure and private way. This is the internet of value and it's an extraordinary thing. Now, in a crisis like the current pandemic, which is sweeping the world, um, we've been doing a lot of work on how blockchain can change um, how we get the right data to manage this thing and also how blockchains can be used to fight a pandemic in, in many uh, different ways. And um, we've written a very significant report on this, 25,000 words, which is available um, through the blockchainresearchinstitute.org and also will be available through uh, Binance as well. And we've come up with a number of different uh, areas where blockchain can make a huge difference in helping us fight back this uh, terrible virus. Uh, Alex, um, over to you. Yeah, well, one example of that is in uh, how we manage data in the healthcare system. So data is the most important asset really in fighting pandemics. Uh, without it, you can't answer critical questions. You know, who are infected? Uh, where have they traveled, et cetera? Um, and right now, if any useful data exists, it's typically inside of institutional silos, inside of individual hospitals or government departments. And with that data being unable to speak to other pockets of data and for us to be able to share that data in a trusted way, we're unable to produce the health outcomes that we desire, not just for uh, individuals, but also for populations as a whole. So one of the main recommendations to come out of the report um, is that we should move towards a version of a self-sovereign identity where individuals have uh, control over their own healthcare information and where they can share that information into what we call a data commons in a secure and anonymous way so that um, government officials and, and policymakers can use that data to uh, address the pandemic on a population-wide level. Um, to, be able, to be able to see and track how individuals who may or may not have been affected, may or may not have been vaccinated, may or may not have antibodies or are moving around. Um, and we think that the, uh, the trade-off between security and, and privacy need not be so stark, that, that there is a potential way 
um, for us to have your cake and eat it too, as they say, to have robust data that can be used um, by policymakers at the, po at the um, population level, whilst also maintaining um, a level of, of uh, privacy and security for the individual. That's just one of um, a half a dozen different recommendations that we've made in the report, and obviously happy to talk about the other ones. But really, as Don said, you know, data is one of the most important asset classes of this economy. It's the critical asset class in dealing with these kinds of health emergencies. And the system we have today um, is antiquated and broken, and uh, there are opportunities to use blockchain to fix it. Thank you for both of you on that question. I'd love to ask you about uh, supply chain. In the crisis right now, we realize uh, supply chain have been severely constrained by the crisis. What roles does blockchain play in this? Well, in the supply chain is the foundation of many parts of our economy. If you have it, it came from a supply chain. This is a $50 trillion industry globally. And um, we're noticing here, of course, uh, in North America that there are severe weaknesses in our supply chains today. Uh, we're unable to get basic equipment to uh, hospitals and to, and to frontline uh, workers who are combating the virus. Something as simple as a paper mask. Um, and uh, something uh, much more significant like a ventilator. And this is really totally unacceptable uh, given the fact that overall we do have uh, a, a very good supply chains today. It's just that our systems for managing them are antiquated. They're, they go back decades old technology like EDI or ERP or traditional computer systems. The other problem has been hoarding. And people uh, will, will go and buy, say, two years of toilet paper out of fear and out of lack of transparency in the supply chain. And if they knew that there's a supply chain perfectly capable of creating and delivering toilet paper, then they wouldn't um, get involved in antisocial hoarding behavior. So blockchain is the new platform for supply chains globally. We can now have supply chains that are much more robust, where there's a single version of the truth in a supply chain, rather than all of these different players and trains and boats and trucks and planes and bills of lading and escrow agents and transfer agents and tax authorities and um, intermediaries and uh, various payment systems, all functioning using traditional technology and paper and faxes and telephone calls, we can have something very different. We can have a shared network state on a blockchain where there's real-time information. And this is a very powerful thing that could help us dramatically. Very good. So Alex, I want to ask you about cash during mm. this. Cash has been labeled as the carrier of virus. So do you think cash are important? Do you think there's a digital alternative? Well, it's a great question. Um, so in a, yes, when, when the crisis began, uh, we started hearing news that um, cash, and I mean by cash, I mean, you know, cold, hard currency that you can feel in your hand. Um, could potentially be 
a way for the virus to spread person to person. And it makes sense, you know, if you pay for something and you've got uh, cash in your pocket, you put your hand in your pocket, you may have the virus, you hand it to someone else, you can understand how that would spread. And uh, actually in China, um, authorities were going so far as to literally launder money, uh, meaning that they were actually taking cash out of circulation uh, and either replacing it or washing the bills uh, so that the uh, virus wouldn't spread, which is um, you know, quite a, a smart, but obviously quite a labor intensive process. Um, so there's been a growing drumbeat to say, well, why don't we just abolish cash altogether? You know, we've got technology to do um, contactless payments, um, credit cards and Apple Pay and WeChat and these other applications are becoming so much more popular. Shouldn't we just abolish cash altogether? And um, the answer to that is, well, it's, it's kind of complicated. It's true that physical cash is a primitive um, device. Uh, it's a primitive technology, but it also serves a purpose. Um, it allows individuals to uh, transact and, and make payments and, and do business peer to peer um, in a frictionless way and in a private way. And there are lots of valid reasons why you know, individuals uh, may want to make sure that their transactions remain private. You know? um, and um, that's something that we ought to preserve. So what's required here is not just some new form of, pay, of, of payments that it still involves banks and credit cards and all the old intermediaries. What we need is a digital medium for value that acts as a bearer instrument. And uh, there's obviously lots of very exciting opportunities in that space. The most obvious one are community currencies like Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, what's amazing about it really is that it works and it works so well that it's set off this spark that's kind of caught on like wildfire and it's now used by tens of millions of people. Um, but not every merchant accepts it. Uh, it's still quite volatile. And despite the, the great efforts at Binance and elsewhere, um, many people still don't know actually how to acquire Bitcoin. Um, so we should be looking at some other alternatives. We should be encouraging Bitcoin, of course, but looking at other alternatives. One potential alternative are so-called corporate currencies, um, projects like Libra, which was announced by Facebook last year. Now, while Facebook's Libra is a useful way to move money peer to peer, it's actually not um, really a version of cash because ultimately the records of transactions and the governance of that network are going to be controlled by the companies that create and oversee it. And that leaves us with the third option, which are so-called central bank digital currencies. Now there's been a lot of efforts underway around the world to uh, build and develop these uh, central bank digital currencies. In China, I think they've been uh, leaders in this regard. We've also seen projects underway in Canada and Europe and in some smaller countries like Venezuela and Iran. Um, there's an interesting design principle that has to go into these kinds of currencies, which is that we need to be able to ensure that governments can oversee large fl flows of funds to prevent the funding of crime and terrorism and other illicit activities, while also giving individuals at the retail level the ability to make uh, payments peer-to-peer -peer, uh, without necessarily exposing all their information to um, some central authority. And that's ultimately the biggest um, challenge. Now, what we've suggested is that perhaps the solution is for governments globally to work together to create what's called a synthetic global hegemonic currency, which is off, an awful mouthful, uh, and maybe they should consider rebranding. But the idea is fairly simple, which is that individual governments would have their own central bank digital currencies there would be a global 
uh, benchmark, which would be priced in a basket of those different currencies, and that benchmark would have its own token, and you'd be able to use that to spend money peer-to-peer. -peer. And no single government would be able to have perfect information about how individuals are spending that money. Um, so this is one of those things where uh, crises generally tend to accelerate the pace of history, things that take years or months or years now take days or weeks to, uh, to develop in advance. And I think that um, you know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste and that we have an opportunity to really consider what the future of money is going to look like. And I think it's going to be digital. And if it's going to be digital, then it needs to have these principles of privacy um, uh, endowed in them. I'll just add a quick uh, thought to that, that well, first of all, <clears throat> uh, China is a real leader in this area with its DCEP, um, uh, the central bank uh, digital currency um, that's um, uh, uh, coming from the uh, People's Bank of China. And other con countries are scrambling to be able to do this. But something like this would be an extraordinary um, boom to any economy and to the global economy and help us get the recovery started again quickly. Central bankers would have access to all kinds of information that they didn't have previously. You've changed the uh, inflation rate. You could find out what's happening. Um, you, you put some money into the economy. You could have an understanding about what people are doing with it. They're investing more, they're saving more, they're spending and so on. Mm -hmm. um, there could be a lighter touch on uh, regulation as well. And um, when you consider um, just the challenge in the United States, for example, today of making direct payments to tens of millions of people, how are they going to do that using existing technology? It's going to be a terrible challenge. Um, if we had a central bank cryptocurrency, uh, the, the US, uh, the digital dollar in the United States, then governments could helicopter drop the, the, uh, money right onto the uh, uh, digital wallets of uh, citizens, rather than trying to go through these ancient arcane payment uh, systems that uh, were developed uh, decades ago. So this is a very exciting topic and it's dead relevant to the whole question of the global pandemic today. Fantastic. So when would you see the first central bank digital currency deployed at a big scale globally? Well, I think that, as Don pointed out, China has been a real leader in this regard. And, um, you know, President Xi had said that uh, blockchain is something that will be foundational to the next period of, uh, of growth in the country um, and, is, and is making it part of that plan. Um, and so I can see the uh, Chinese actually being the first to launch something like this um, at the at the national level. And, you know, it's it's interesting in North America, people don't really fully appreciate just how uh, large the digital economy already is in China. Um, you know, there are more people on the Internet in uh, China than there are in Europe and the United States combined, for example, um, there the uh, the flow of payments. Um, online is significantly larger than it is in the United States. And um, in, in the US, they have this thing called Black Friday, which is a big shopping day. But as you well know, Singles Day blows that out of the water. So China is um, moving forward with a, a, a native digital currency at the national level and injecting it into an economy that is already um, well suited for something like that. And I think as a result, um, that's going to be very successful and uh, you will see um, its use 
be uh, widespread very quickly, would be my guess. And then the other thing which is interesting is that you know, China has ambitions to, to um, tie together uh, economies in Asia and Africa and elsewhere uh, into a Chinese sphere of influence. And we've seen that with the Belt and Road Project, for example. A native digital currency uh, that, uh, that's issued by China could be a very robust payment system um, to be used along those trade networks as well, which has also the um, intended or unintended uh, consequence of potentially dislodging the US dollar as the main method of payment in a lot of different uh, you know, international trade relationships. So I think that China understands the strategic value of this on the national and international level, which is why they're moving forward with it. Um, and I think honestly, if you compare it to say the US, I mean, there are certain people in the US who have been um, quite uh, vocal in their support of this, namely um, the former chairman of the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, which is uh, one of the largest financial marketplaces in the, on the planet. Um, he's been a big advocate, but in terms of people sitting in power at the government level, um, the interest has been lacking. And I think that they, uh, they you know, ignore this at their peril because um, this is something that's, that's happening and uh, will, I think, prove to be quite transformational. So will all financial assets eventually be digital? What is the future of security tokens? Well, I'll take this one as well, um, considering that it's, it's a big part of the uh, new book, which um, I've released recently called Financial Services Revolution, which is available in English, will soon be available in, in Chinese as well as in Portuguese. Um, yes, the answer is that almost every single asset in the economy will be um, dig digital at some point, or a financial asset, I should say. You can't digitize a house, but you can digitize the title to that house. Um, if you consider uh, the stock market, I think that's the best place to start. So the value of all crypto assets today is around 200, um, you know, and 10 or 215 billion dollars US, depending on the day that you're looking at it, which is a significant number, uh, about half the market capitalization of JP Morgan, the, the largest bank in the world. But if you compare it to the value of the entire securities market, um, specifically this, the equity market, it's a rounding error. The global equity market, even with the latest correction from the virus, is still worth you know 50 to 60 plus trillion dollars. Um, and it turns out that shares are a perfect kind of asset to be uh, digitized using um, the, the same technology that makes cryptocurrencies possible, which is blockchain. Because a stock is really just a contract. It is a contract that entitles the bearer, the owner of that contract, to a share of a common enterprise and to um, certain rights, such as the payment of dividends or, say, the ability to vote on certain matters like changes of control and so forth. Um, all of those different um, rules in that contract can be completely digitized and um, uh, using blockchain. And the reasons to do that are, are sort of many fold. Number one, if you have a perfect record of who owns what asset, then all of the record keeping that is actually proven to be quite unreliable basically goes away because you have a real-time, auditable, truthful record of who owns what shares. Um, trading of those securities can happen instantly and peer-to-peer -peer rather than requiring broker-dealers and clearinghouses and custodians and transfer agents and all these other arcane institutions, which 
undergird the infrastructure of financial markets, you can do it all peer-to-peer -peer in a decentralized way. And the trading period doesn't take two to three to four days, which is what it still takes today. It can happen in a matter of seconds. So you get speed, efficiency, reliability, trust, and decentralization embedded into our financial markets, which I think most people would agree are some uh, admirable qualities that we should all be working towards. And security and stocks and equities um, are one of a dozen different kinds of financial assets which are well suited to this. Uh, the market for fixed income, so bonds and specifically government bonds, uh, is many, many times larger than the market for stocks. And that is also a huge opportunity for this technology. Um, so the, and we're starting to see this, of course, um, there are a number of different companies, Harbor, Bact, um, Binance, et cetera, that are looking very hard at this space. And I think you'll see that it, it will become uh, one of the hottest growth areas in the coming years. You talk about China. What are the other leading countries and regions in the world for blockchain innovation? Well, we've been studying this over the last few years. And this is a very critical question because if it's true that this is the second era of the internet, the first era was based in Silicon Valley in California. Where will the second era be based? Now, it won't be one location only. There will be a number. But if any country or any region can build up an ecosystem um, that's world-class for this new technology, that creates enormous prosperity, jobs, uh, government tax revenue, and all kinds of other benefits, innovation, and so on. So to build a global ecosystem, it's great to have a large domestic market. You need to have ways of funding entrepreneurship. You need world-class universities and talent, not just computer science talent, but talent in general for innovation. Um, you need governments that are supportive, governments as model users of the technology, but also governments that create policies that encourage entrepreneurship. And as you look around the world, it's very difficult to have all of those different criteria together. Um, Silicon Valley is not at the top of the list, um, but there are a number of global centers um, they include in Switzerland around Zug, um, where there's, there are many, many thousands of people working in the blockchain and crypto space. Um, elsewhere in Europe, uh, London is pretty good because it's a global financial center. Uh, in North America, New York is very strong with a big ecosystem, as is Toronto in Canada. that has the Toronto Waterloo a blockchain corridor. Uh, in Asia, there are a number of strong centers, most of them in China, um, with Shenzhen, Shanghai, Beijing, um, Hangzhou, and Guangzhou, all being uh, very important centers. And now Hainan is uh, making a lot of investments in this space as well. Uh, other areas include Singapore. There's a growing ecosystem now in Tokyo and in Seoul as well. So those are just some on our list. We track these actually at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. But the stakes are very, very high. 
in countries creating the conditions whereby this can occur. You know, the last time I was speaking in China, it was introduced by the president uh, uh, or the uh, vice chair of the C uh, Central Party, uh, Communist Party in China. And um, he read a greeting from President Xi, uh, Jing, uh, Xi Jinping, which in, in the greeting, uh, Xi stated how important that he felt the blockchain was for China and building an innovation economy. And that kind of national leadership is very rare in the world. You sure don't see that in a country like the United States, for example, or for that matter, in almost any other uh, European country. And I, I can't tell you how important that is in creating the conditions whereby entrepreneurs feel that they have support and a license really to invent in this space. Don, Binance are very honored because you recently joined force with us and you also become the chairman of the Lingang Blockchain Academy. As we can see, the crisis revealed uh, limitations on top-down governance. What kind of advice, you know, under this uh, Lingang Blockchain Academy you would give to government, also entrepreneurs then? Well, for governments, you need to do everything I just said <laughs> to create the conditions whereby innovation can occur. One of the biggest problems is regulation. This is a problem pretty much everywhere in the world. As we have securities regulation, um, which makes it very difficult for entrepreneurs to use um, uh, token generation events to fund innovation. And this is an extraordinary new opportunity where companies at a very early stage can uh, either not rely so much on or even bypass traditional forms of angel venture capital and other um, uh, sources of funds and go directly peer to peer to interested parties who might want to fund this. And um, I won't mention any names, but one uh, country that we examined uh, just very recently uh, in the Western world has a, a, a very important country, has a huge problem where the securities regulators are, are almost hostile towards these important new token generation activities where banks won't give an actual bank account to a company that has the name block, blockchain or crypto or Bitcoin or something in their, their title because they, they assume that there are bad actors involved, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, this is, this is the second era of the internet. This is something that's enormously positive and good. Of course, there are bad actors because uh, criminals are always the first to adopt any new technologies, but this is no different than anything else, really. So, and there's a lot of secure, uh, a lot of unclarity too in these uh, security markets where the regulator might view a token offering only as a security and the tax people view it as, as a product that's generating revenue and they want to tax it. And then you've got some other regulators that view it differently. So it's very important that governments and regulators around the world wake up and understand what a historic new opportunity this is for innovation in their countries. Uh, technology should work for people. As you said, this is the second year of the internet. 
after all, it should all come down to people and value. We're seeing crisis in hospitals. There's a shortage of uh, supplies. How do you see blockchain can help this? Well, I'll take that one. Um, so I think it's quite clear from the crisis that frontline medical professionals, doctors, nurses, pa uh, paramedics, and so forth, really are the heroes of this um, moment that we're going through. And they're our last line of defense in so many ways. Um, yet hospitals can't seem to onboard people fast enough. Um, and this is a strange thing because it's actually not for a lack of talent per se, it's the inability to find them. Um, there's a, a concept called the talent management paradox, basically, where organizations are continuously struggling to tap in to pools of skilled people looking for work. So how exactly does blockchain solve this? Well, um, I think in, in answering one of your initial questions, uh, Helen, I, I talked about this idea of a sovereign identity, the digital identity. Um, and it's relevant, of course, to health records and to health data, but it's also relevant to credentials. So what if individuals had, as part of their self-sovereign self identity, credentials about uh, where they worked, where they went to school, what their qualifications were, and so forth. And employers could access that database and know with confidence that the information contained in those identities was real and accurate. Um, it would radically improve the search function uh, for businesses, hospitals, governments, and so forth in finding, identifying, and onboarding uh, talented people to start working right away. Uh, and this is uh, well, actually one of the recommendations that we made in, in the most recent report and dig into in some level of, of detail uh, because there are a number of initiatives underway, ODEM, uh, ProCredX, and others that we talk about that are trying to solve just exactly that. And in this crisis, we witness and the virus actually, we're all the same, whether you are head of states or you are somebody very famous you can still catch the same virus. So what do you think the blockchain can assist in philanthropic space? Well, I'll start and then I think Don will have some thoughts on this one as well. Um, so there are a couple of things that can be done. Um, Binance Charity, as, for, as an example, is using its influence to uh, bring together companies in the space to uh, match their uh, pledged donations um, in order to allocate money towards PPE, medical equipment, and so forth. And something like that, which um, is urgently needed, is an admirable thing. Um, then, and I know that also Binance is looking at how it can uh, marshal blockchain itself to, to solve this. And I think that's um, where the future lies. So our belief is that blockchain can fundamentally transform how NGOs, governments, and individual donors deliver aid uh, to philanthropic causes and organizations. Um, there's a strange paradox today as it relates to foreign aid, which is that money that uh, is intended to reach a, a specific vulnerable population oftentimes does not uh, because it's intercepted by uh, organizations, middlemen, or even unfortunately corrupt government officials who uh, actually uh, end up taking that or, or using those resources when it should be going to the final subject. And we think that blockchain can improve the delivery of philanthropic aid in, in a couple of really important ways. So first off, 
by disintermediating the middlemen who act as the conduits of large aid transfers, blockchain can reduce this problem, this chronic problem of outright misappropriation and theft. And second, and I think this is actually more uh, important, as an immutable ledger for the flow of funds, blockchain compels large institutions from aid groups, to governments, and everyone else in between uh, to act with integrity and abide by their commitments. If they don't, people will be able to see that malfeasance and hold them to account. So imagine you're donating to a cause that's delivering uh, protective equipment or is funding the development of medical devices. You'll be able to see uh, where that money goes, how it's spent, where it's allocated, et cetera. And we can actually take this one step further where we can uh, program the money with a certain level of intelligence. So if you're donating to a cause, that is building uh, ventilators or is um, creating and, and manufacturing masks, you'll be able to see that the money goes into a separate account, which is locked in a smart contract and is only released if it actually reaches the intended target. And if people have greater knowledge and, and have greater transparency into how funds are being spent, they're more willing to donate more. So this will actually, we think, create uh, a potential boom in additional aid because everyone will know and trust that the money is going to the intended target. So we can leverage this technology really to, to just transform how aid is delivered. Um, and this is one of those great crises where people are signing up to donate um, because everyone is just so uh, key, um, you know, uh, keen to, to do it uh, given the, the, the severity of the crisis. Um, that we could use this as an opportunity to fix those big problems. The whole issue of blockchain and its role in philanthropy is a subset of this broader theme that we're working on here at the Blockchain Research Institute, which is blockchain for good. And uh, philanthropy uh, pandemics. Um, in our report, we talk about many of the things we've been discussing today, just in time supply chain solutions. Um, uh, creating um, uh, uh, enormously much, uh, much more powerful data through um, uh, sovereign health records, um, blockchain-based rapid response registry for medical professionals, uh, blockchain-based incentive models to reward a responsible uh, behavior. And, um, but beyond these opportunities in, in a pandemic, um, there are much broader opportunities to help with public health, building a better uh, pharmaceutical industry and a better response capability. And then beyond that, there are all these wonderful opportunities. Think about financial inclusion. There are well over a billion people in the world who, who don't have access to a bank account, who are not part of the global banking system. But many of them have a supercomputer in their pocket. We can deliver financial services to these people almost overnight through this technology. Land titles. In the developing world, 70% of land titles are not enforceable. And this is a big problem because if you don't have a valid title to your land, you can't borrow against it, you can't plan for the future. Blockchain is the new platform for immutable land titles where no uh, corrupt leader in, in Honduras or some uh, 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 bribed civil servant in, in a town in India 
can uh, mess with your uh, land title. A really big one is remittances. You know, I live in Toronto. There are a million Chinese people and many of them send money home. They're part of the global diaspora. And why should they be charged 10 to 15% by the Western Union? This is, this is almost, um, it's un unthinkable, it's unconscionable. And with blockchain, that money uh, can move at the speed of light, not taking four to seven days. And, um, and these people can send all of the money to their, their uh, relatives. And you know, this, the list goes on and on and on. There are many, uh, many uh, different topics under this category of blockchain uh, for good. A good source for some of that is actually my uh, TED talk on TED.com. Many millions of people have watched that where I talk about how blockchain can help us achieve a fairer and more prosperous world. Alex and Dong, uh, really appreciate what you just said. And actually, I'm a big fan of your blockchain for good. At uh, Binance uh, a Charity Foundation, we truly believe actually technology should work for people and values. And we want to shape a future that works for all of us by putting people first and empowering them. We believe blockchain should be, uh, as play as a complement to the best part of the human nature which is creativity, empathy, stewardship. And this is how the blockchain revolution should lift humanity into a new collective and more moral conscious space, a sense, uh, a shared sense of destiny for all of us. So my last question, what do you see the implementation challenge that could prevent blockchain from reaching this potential? Well, I'll kick things off and then I know Don will have something to add. Um, we believe blockchain is the second era of the internet and has the potential to transform uh, money, finance, business, uh, government, our institutions, and ultimately our entire economy for the better, if we will it. Uh, but we uh, also recognize that there are um, potential reasons why blockchain may not reach its potential. And um, there are so many of these reasons actually that we dedicated an entire chapter in the book, Blockchain Revolution, to addressing each of these individually. The chapter is called Showstoppers, Why Blockchain Might Fail. Now, that book came out a couple of years ago. I think at this point, it's, it's fair to say that blockchain is not going to fail, but it may fail to reach its potential or its highest potential. Um, if these uh, potential showstoppers do come to fruition. So what are some examples of that? Well, we've already addressed a couple of them on the call. One being, how will governments react? Will they uh, embrace this technology? Will they create the conditions for entrepreneurs to succeed? Or will they react to it um, negatively, employing all the sort of old ways of thinking and dogma that uh, directed them in the past? Um, how will incumbents uh, respond. Big companies today that have a vested interest in maintaining the status of markets and, and business um, may fight against change. Um, is the technology uh, have the ability to scale? Will it be ready to meet the demands that we want to place on it to transform business, to reinvent uh, philanthropy and so forth? Um, and um, will blockchain potentially create dislocation to the labor market? 
Um, will it potentially disintermediate people from all sorts of vital business processes? And these are all valid concerns, um, but you have to ask yourself, and I think your framing of the question was quite um, correct. Are these reasons that blockchain is a bad idea or are they implementation challenges uh, to be overcome? And uh, should we work to overcome them? And I think the answer to each and all of those is, is yes. Um, on the question of governments, for example, we have seen many governments in China and Switzerland and Singapore, um, in Korea most recently, um, changing their tune uh, or re-emphasizing their commitment to this technology. And I think that's a big positive. Uh, we've seen incumbent organizations. You know, the Blockchain Research Institute um, is funded in large part by large companies that are already leaders in their industries. Companies like Tencent or Fujitsu or Microsoft or IBM, Exxon, uh, FedEx and so forth. And we're incredibly encouraged by the work that these large companies are doing to um, not only look at how this technology could change how they do business today, but to potentially see how it could transform their industry and what kinds of new products and services they could create as a result. So we're very encouraged by that. The technology itself continues to radically and rapidly improve. Um, and I think the success of, of Binance as a corporation and as a business um, in this industry is a prime example of that. And then um, on the question of uh, labor, um, it's possible that people lose their jobs. It's also possible though that blockchain um, creates the conditions for creative destruction, the destruction of old industries and the launch of new ones. And actually we think the technology could bring about the uh, golden days of entrepreneurship, the ability for people to organize capital and assets um, quickly, digitally, uh, to fund their projects, tapping into global markets of investors, and to uh, grow businesses regardless of where they are in the world. Um, so those are just a few examples of challenges and then the ways in which we can overcome them. It's not an exhaustive list. There are others, of course, as well. Um, but again, I think the key thing here is that we should be looking to overcome them um, because there's an opportunity to build a more fair, more resilient, um, more anti-fragile, uh, and more open economy and a more open world. And that's something we should all be working towards. Yes, I'll just add to that, that, um, that this is really a new paradigm, um, a new internet. It's part of the second era of the digital age. And when you get a new paradigm, they're often received badly with coolness or worse, hostility. Vested interests fight against change, as Alex just said. And often leaders of old paradigms have great difficulty embracing the new. So how are we going to find the leadership <clears throat> for this new era to occur? And our research indicates that leadership can come from anywhere. It can come from a head of state or government leader, but that's very rare. Sometimes it can come from a CEO, but that's rare as well. Typically, leadership comes from all kinds of different places within an organization, a government, or a society. And that's a very positive message for us, because to overcome these challenges, leadership can really come from anywhere. And it means that each of us has an opportunity to be a leader as an entrepreneur, as a change agent, 
uh, within a company as, or a government as a writer or thinker or whatever. And don't get us wrong. We don't think that this technology is going to solve problems. People solve problems, not technology. But the first era of the internet, it, while it's created many wonderful things, it also created many problems. You know, it undermined the, the living of content creators like musicians. Um, it led to a fragmentation of public discourse. Um, it led to our data being captured by huge companies. And there are many other problems. So technology in the second era is not going to fix that. But as we said, Alex and I said in Blockchain Revolution, in the opening sentence, that once again, the genie, the technology genie has escaped from the bottle. Second time now. And it was summoned by this anonymous person or persons uh, with uncertain motives at this very uh, difficult time in human history. And the genie is not going to solve our problems, but it, it gives us another opportunity, another kick at the can, we might say, to bring about some very profound and powerful changes to our institutions, our economy, uh, and our society, but only if we will it. So at the Blockchain Research Institute, we're, we're encouraging leadership and we're looking for leaders everywhere uh, in the world. And uh, we're very proud to have Binance as being a member of the BRI. And I'm very proud to be the honorary dean of the Lingang Academy as well. And we look forward to, to helping build this movement because that's really what it is around the world. So that maybe this smaller, more distributed world that our grandchildren inherit might actually be a better one. Thank you very much, Don and Alex, for all of those inspirational and wise words. It's very clear, neither technology nor the disruption that comes with its force over which humans have no control. All of us have the responsibility to guide this revolution and play a role on it. Like the old saying, this is the best of times and it also the worst of times. There has never been a time of great promise. Let me quote something Nelson Mandela once said. It always seems impossible until it's done. So at Binance, we look forward uh, working very closely with two of you uh, to moving from that vision to action, dreams to reality. Thank you all. Thank you, Helen. Well said.